As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast, I'm Ian Irving and coming up, a transfer update with David Ornstein, Chris Woff on the latest from Newcastle's tour of Austria and an exclusive from Adam Crafton featuring an interview with the CEO of Ukrainian side Shakhtar Donetsk. But let's start then with transfer news and we're joined by the Athletic's football correspondent David Ornstein to do just that. David, we were set to be talking about how it's gone a little bit quiet on the transfer front, but actually you've had a busy morning. Yeah, that's right, Ian. Um, so much so that I didn't even have time to brush my hair, hence the cap. <laughs> um, my voice is a little bit croaky from all the phone calls, so apologies to our listeners. But <laughs> yeah, just before we started recording, we published a story to say that Armando Broja um, is edging towards a transfer from Chelsea to West Ham United. It's not done yet, but the clubs are now close to reaching an agreement for that transfer or proposed deal. As things stand, the talks are geared towards a permanent transfer, which may surprise some people who thought, despite West Ham wanting a permanent transfer, it was more likely that Chelsea would only let him go on loan. Such a precocious talent, only 20 years old, and we caught a glimpse of what he was able to do in the first half of last season on loan at Southampton. So another temporary switch appeared to be the most likely scenario. But as I said, the conversations right now currently are looking at a permanent deal. Now, personal terms are in place as we understand it, but not the contract length just yet, because that will obviously be determined by uh, the nature of the deal itself, permanent or loan. But I think on the player side, they're in pretty good shape. He's obviously flying back from... Chelsea's tour to the US, which he only appeared on for a short time, having gone out late in the first place. And I think there were photographs of his foot being in a boot. I don't know if that's just precautionary or something a bit more serious. And they're not on to talk about medicals yet. Uh, But a key thing in this transfer or proposed transfer is that it wasn't Chelsea who sort of instigated it and drove it and pushed for it. It wasn't done on their sort of desire. It was the preference of Armando Broja, who seems to be very keen to be playing regular first-team football, starting Premier League matches week in, week out. And that's why this situation has accelerated. We knew there was interest from others too, including 
Everton, but it seems that West Ham are now in pole position for this, but it's not done just yet. And in terms of it being a permanent deal and not a loan deal, David, is there going to be some sort of buyback clause there for Chelsea? Because like you say, with them not instigating the transfer either, and with him being a very talented player that a lot of clubs are keeping an eye on, indeed, Chelsea were keeping Mm. a close eye on him last year when he was out on loan. Do you see that being an option for them? I don't know personally, I haven't got that level of detail, but I have seen reports suggesting exactly that. And it would make total sense because he's at such a young age and he's under contract at Chelsea, so they don't need to sell him. They could try and integrate him and and build with him. So if they are going to cash in, uh, which will obviously help their balance sheet in this window as well, and they've still got some pretty big ambitions around recruitment themselves, then a buyback would certainly make sense. It's how Chelsea have often operated in the past. Um, I think to Tammy Abraham over at Roma and they've got, uh, what is it, 80 million euros or something like that if they want to activate it at some point. But we do need to remember that this is a different regime now at ownership level. The Bowley Clear Lake uh, consortium running the club now will have some different strategies to the previous regime under Roman Abramovich. Indeed, there was a story in uh, the Telegraph this morning about how Chelsea are changing their wage structure and their bonuses, incentivized contracts. Whereas under Abramovich, they used to give more to players in advance and the incentives were really just around winning the biggest trophies. And that's partly why they managed to foster this winning culture. I think what they're trying to do now is more in line with some of their rivals like Manchester City. Um, And so... Uh, that's around the contracts. But in terms of buyback clauses on a player like this, while I don't know, I don't have any reason to dispute the other reports that are out there. And it would be in keeping how Chelsea have operated in the past and how most clubs would look to uh, trade if they were letting a player of Brozier's quality and potential leave at such a tender age. Okay, I started this section by saying it's been quiet, but there has still been some stories that you've released throughout the week on the transfer front, of course. We'll go through a few of them now. Jesse Lingard seems to be a very interesting case because I thought, I think, and I'm guessing a lot of people did, that his future at Manchester United has been uncertain for some time. The loan at West Ham, which went well, was a long time ago. And you get the sense, or I got the sense, that he would have had something sorted when the summer started. But he's now setting a deadline by the end of this week to try and get his future mapped out. We're under a month away from the start of the new season and he's still without a club. Yeah, just back on your point about it being a little bit quiet. I think that's because June was so extraordinary and the deals were actually being done early doors, largely because... Clubs wanted to get an addition on board before leaving for their pre-season tours um, and maximise this sort of, I don't know, um, surge in activity post um, the COVID-affected transfer market with fans now back in stadiums, revenues high, new television deals and things like that. June um, made way for a tiny bit of a lull at the start of July. But that's because they were going on their tours and um, they were then trying to figure out what they needed after those initial rush of signings. And while they're on those tours, they'll take a look at their teams and squads in match scenarios before deciding on the next step. But I think we're now getting into that next step. And so that's... Are you saying it's about to get exciting <laughs> again, David? Yeah, indeed. And that's why it's picking up. So on Lingard, yeah, he wants to be in a club by this Friday. So, you know, we're... 
moving very rapidly towards that point now. And we reported at the back end of last week that he had offers from Saudi Arabia, a huge lucrative uh, deal over there. We don't know more specifics at this stage, but also that his preference was to remain in the Premier League with three proposals on the table. Of course, we've seen West Ham heavily linked where he had a really uh, profitable loan spell, um, Everton and and various other clubs. Um, Clearly, it's not gone as smoothly as he would have hoped because I imagine he would have wanted to be in at a club in time for pre-season. And, you know, that shows that maybe the free agent market is a little bit more tricky uh, than maybe in, in times gone past. Um, but he's very close to a decision now, we're, we're assured, and, and we'll try and pick up on that as the week goes on. Because I think this is really a, a very fascinating case of a player who has bags of ability and is proven at club and international level. He's now at an age where this is probably his last big move. Uh, and there's so much riding on it. He's finally got control of his career post-Manchester United, who had him on a long contract. There were loan spells. There were good spells back at United. There were frustrations about how things worked out and the uh, intention of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to give him regular starts, which didn't really materialise. So, yeah, Jesse Lingard is one that we should pay close attention to in the days ahead. Yeah, we'll await an update on that then. Alexander Zinchenko is another player to keep a close eye on as well. You've reported about Arsenal's interest in him and working on a deal to sign him from Manchester City. Is there any update on that, David? Alexander Zinchenko has been on Arsenal's radar for a long time. The interest wasn't really the new part of the report. He's always been on their list and in the mix, um, but they decided to focus their attention on Lissandro Martinez of Ajax this summer. But also there was interest in him from Arsenal previously. It wasn't completely fresh, but this is when they really stepped it up. As soon as Manchester United were in the equation and wanted to provide Eric Ten Hag with a player that he was very determined to recruit, they went up to a level of finance that Arsenal just weren't prepared to meet. They didn't think that was the sort of value for money they were looking for. For a player who at this point they were looking to compete with Kieran Tierney at left back, maybe operate at left centre back when needed, maybe even into midfield. And in Zinchenko, you have a similar but more cost effective version of that mainly left back, but also, as he's shown for his country in particular, real uh, fantastic capacity in central midfield. And we broke the news that Arsenal were now working on a deal to sign him um, as a result of missing out on Martinez and that they were seeking an agreement with Manchester City over the transfer fee and obviously the player on personal terms. Those conversations have gone on. I think the agreements with the clubs will not be an issue. That seems to be pretty much in place and has been widely reported in the region of £30 million. But I, I do need to check that to get the final figures that, that the clubs will settle on when it's not verbal and it's made formal, if indeed it is, which I'm pretty optimistic it will be. And then the personal terms. There have been a lot of conversations behind the scenes to get this right because, of course, Zinchenko's under contract at Manchester City. He comes from an environment where he's winning trophies every year, playing in the Champions League um, and seemed pretty happy there. Any players that came in in his position, he seemed to fend them off and still get a good number of games under his belt. And I didn't sense that he was agitating for a move. But again, Manchester City want to recruit at left back with Mark Cucurella high on their list and other options as well. So this time, it feels like it's, it's going to happen. There's obviously a close bond between Mikel Arteta and Zinchenko from their time working together at City. 
there will be options on the market. They will have their lists. And in fact, one of the questions I get asked most by Arsenal fans in particular is what's the latest on Yuri Tielemans? Because we know that he only has 12 months to go on his Leicester contract and they would be open to selling if they receive a suitable offer with no indication that he's going to be signing a new deal there. And we've reported that Arsenal have a firm interest in him, that the key decision makers at the club um, are essentially all in on him. But it's a little bit more complicated than that because when you talk to people around this situation, they make clear that there may need to be a departure first for Tielemans to come into Arsenal. Um, whether that be a Granit Xhaka or somebody else in that area of the field to free up the space, the finance. Um, so there are football reasons and not non-footballing reasons too at why this might not have happened yet, but why it may still happen um, later in the window. I don't know of an uh, impending departure in that zone and, and perhaps that's why we're in this sort of holding pattern now. But I think, of course, that's one to watch with Arsenal and potentially other clubs as well as the market develops. Um, it could be one that happens further down the line. But just in respect of Arsenal, um, the sense I've got is that if Tielemans is to come in, it will probably be contingent on a departure in that part of the pitch. I was going to make some bad joke at this point, David, about having a cornet to finish considering the weather's hot and we all enjoy <laughs> ice cream when it's 40 degrees. But um, Maxwell Cornet uh, from Burnley to Everton sounds like a potential option as well. And it's the last point that we're going to talk about in this section. Yeah, that's right. So we actually revealed in my Monday column towards the end of last season that there was or is a £17.5 million release clause in the contract of um, Maxwell Cornet in the event of relegation for Burnley. And they were indeed relegated, so that becomes active. I don't know if that's going to be hit by Everton, by anybody, or whether they will try and negotiate a lower deal, a different type of deal. Um, and yeah, we revealed that um, Everton, who have been credited uh, in recent weeks with some interest in Cornet, were actually, are actually working on a deal to sign him. The agreement is not in place between the clubs yet, but conversations are continuing and that contact is very much there. There is interest from elsewhere. It's, I guess, who strikes the right deal with Burnley and also the preference of the player will be key as well. Thanks, David. A pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. (laughs) 
Okay, in an exclusive interview for The Athletic, Adam Crafton reports that Ukrainian football club Shakhtar Donetsk are seeking €50 million worth of damages from FIFA over a ruling that allowed foreign players to unilaterally suspend their contracts in the war-torn country. Adam joins us now to explain more. And Adam, you spoke to Shakhtar CEO Sergei Palkin for this piece. Just remind the listeners of the backstory and the effect that the war has had on football in the country. Yeah, so I suppose if you take it back to March um, or the end of February, where the Russian invasion of Ukraine begins, Ukrainian football basically shuts down. The league can't continue because there's bombings all over the country. And what you have is a situation, I think Shakhtar is a particularly unique situation that they have a lot of foreign footballers playing at Shakhtar. So we've seen over the years, for example, is it players like uh, Willian and Fernandinho that have come who have played at, at Shakhtar in the past or Zinchenko, Zinchenko's Ukrainian, but you know what I mean? These, these players that, that have come, come through uh, yeah. often from South America in particular. So Ukrainian football is restarting this coming season. I mean, Shakhtar will be in the group stage of the Champions League. There will be a Ukrainian season. Around 90% of that is planned to be played in Ukraine. I don't think it'll be played necessarily with fans. It'll be, you know, require quite a lot of army protection and and things like that. But I think it's a, I suppose the idea is to show the country is resilient and getting on with things. But there is this big situation about what do you do about foreign players who are contracted? On the one side, you have FIFPRO, which is like the global trade union for footballers, saying, well, you can't expect foreign footballers to be obliged to go back to a war-torn country where you could argue employment conditions may be quite risky. Therefore, you have to allow them to to basically rip up their contracts and go and sign for somewhere else. Clubs such as Shakhtar, you know, clubs that are in the Champions League and therefore have players who are worth a hell of a lot of money, are saying, we understand that, but we want to be allowed to sell our players um, rather than them just uh, essentially rip up their, their contracts. So what happened was there was a ruling from FIFA in June, this was on the 21st of June, which said that nine days later, on the 30th of June, these foreign players or coaches would basically be allowed to unilaterally suspend their contracts with Shakhtar until June next year. So in essence, they can sign a one-year loan with a, I don't know, Premier League club, a La Liga club, Brazilian club, wherever they want to go, and Shakhtar won't, won't receive any money. Now. This becomes an issue because a lot of these players' contracts will be a year down the line in, 2000, in the June 2023. So take, for example, the, Fulham, uh, sorry, the winger Manuel Solomon, Shakhtar winger, who is signing for Fulham. He is uh, he's an Israeli winger. Fulham were in negotiations with Shakhtar before this ruling came about, and uh, they were going to pay around 7.5 million euros. This ruling came about and Fulham basically came to the view, well, we'll just wait until the 30th of June and take him on a free loan. And therefore, we don't need to pay Shakhtar anything at all uh, because of this FIFA ruling. And Shakhtar's frustration is not with Fulham, it's with FIFA for providing the option and the ruling. Yeah, enabling it, basically. Exactly. This has occurred with numerous transfers that were close to being completed, where Shakhtar were saying, you know, for example, I think they're in negotiations with Leon to sell the forward Tete, 22-year-old Brazilian forward. You know, if you go on transfermark.com, which gives you a rough estimation of value, they're saying that's worth around 20 million euros. He can now just go to Leon for free on loan for a season. And then in a year's time, 
his contract only has six months to run, which means that he can speak to any club in the world and move on a free contract for free. So Shakhtar have lost all their, their value in, in numerous players. So as a result, to summarise it, what's happening now is Shakhtar have appealed to the Court of Arbitration for Sport to set aside this ruling, but they're also say, uh, seeking damages for transfer fees they believe they have lost, which they're saying is already €50 million. Euros. And the final point on this is Shakhtar also saying they've signed players previously in previous summers where they still owe instalments to other clubs across Europe. And they're saying, you know, they plan to, to fund this through player sales, through player trading. So they've had to let these other clubs across Europe know, we can't pay you. So it's not only Shakhtar who are losing money now, but also these other clubs that, that have sold to Shakhtar in the past. So it's a, it's a really messy situation. Yeah, it certainly sounds it. There's lots of detail in your article that's on The Athletic right now as well about this motion from Shakhtar Donetsk to go against FIFA, of course, and try and seek these damages. But I think it's a good point now to hear from Sergei Palkin, who you interviewed, a reminder, he is Shakhtar's CEO, about FIFA's decision to suspend his players' contracts and the reason that they're seeking compensation. First of all, how it's possible to give me just one week to close all deals? I have uh, 14 uh, foreign players. How it's possible I finalize deals, you know, in respect of agent, players, clubs? It's technically, physically not possible, you know. They make decisions without us completely, you know. They didn't pay even attention that maybe we need to contact uh, those clubs and to have some kind of opinion from uh, their situation. So in this kind, in, in this war, everybody support Ukraine and all Ukrainian organizations, Ukrainian bodies, and etc., etc. But how it's possible FIFA uh, body, uh, which is saying that um, uh, we are one family, I mean, we are one football family. They didn't even pay attention to us completely. Yeah, very interesting insight, really, into the situation in Ukraine. Because, of course, football's not the most important factor in that country at the moment, clearly, Adam. But it does play quite a huge part in lifting people's spirit and that message of getting back to normal as well. We saw it even in the UK when the coronavirus pandemic uh, and the measures were starting to ease here, football was one of the first things that the government tried to enable to take place. So it does still play an important part, doesn't it? It does. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of people in Ukraine who support Dynamo Kiev and Shakhtar Donetsk. And I, I think there's going to be a very, very awkward moment probably for, Euro for European football when the Champions League group stages come along and people see a decimated Shakhtar Donetsk playing in the Champions League and they'll probably lose pretty heavily in, in, the games, in the games they play because you know, they've only got their Ukrainian players left. I think most of them will stay, uh, to be honest, because obviously Ukrainian men have to stay in the country. So I think that's going to be a slightly awkward situation. But this is, this is far more, this is a business dispute, essentially. This is a, a business, uh, Shakhtar Donetsk, saying we, because of a ruling made by the world governing body, of football, we are losing you know, tens, of millions of uh, tens of millions of pounds through no fault of our own. And somebody has to offset those losses. Now, what you could say is Shakhtar are owned by one of, well, the richest man in Ukraine, in Rina Akhmetov. And I mean, he's, he's already put in, I think, something like $80, $80 million worth of humanitarian aid into, into the war efforts. So are obviously different priorities, but he's worth billions. So you could turn around and say, well, look, I mean, this is a freak situation. Surely he could cover 40 million 
are, are they concerned about the FFP implications then if, if he was to pump money in? Exactly. So what clubs have to do in order to pass FFP is run sustainably, i.e. Br- pretty much bring in what, they, what they're taking out. Yeah. So therefore, for an owner just to c- inject cash would be arguably a breach of FFP. This is an exceptional circumstance, though, isn't it, really? You'd think that they'd take that into consideration. You'd think they would, but you can also understand it from a businessman's point of view, saying, well, why should I have to take £50 million on my own cash, right? <laughs> True. It's, easy for True us, yeah. it's easy for us to sit here and say, you know, you're worth it, you're worth <laughs> that. Why don't you just stick a bit more money in? Why should yeah. I do this just because FIFA's come up with this ruling? Now, I've got quite a lot of sympathy with the case that you, know, you can't just send players back into a war zone. But it, but it sounds like Shakhtar are accepting of that as well. It's, they're not actually arguing that they need to keep these players as such, are they? Exactly. What they're saying is you made an announcement on June the 21st that this could happen on June the 30th. Therefore, you essentially gave us a week to, to sell all our players. But even in that week, all the clubs that were buying knew that in a week's time, we could just take these players for free. So they just withdrew from the negotiations. I can really, you know, you can understand the frustration. I, th- I think the interesting thing is now what happens next, because it's pretty unusual to have a situation where you have a, a Champions League club, a club that's won the Europa League, in effect, taking legal action worth 50 million euros against the world governing body in FIFA. I think their frustration as well is they feel like FIFA is very, very difficult to communicate with. You know, they, Sergei Palkin in, in the interview describes FIFA as acting like a god in the sky where you, you don't know who to it was almost like you know like when you're trying to get hold of your wi-fi provider and or you're electric speaking from recent experience yeah, yeah. yeah. or you're electric <laughs> or, you're, or you're a gas and electric firm and you just want to speak to someone right and you're being put on hold and you're being told option one oh, option two exactly yeah. and you know they're say, yeah, i've seen letters that were sent to the fifa president gianni infantino Shakhtar say that he hasn't personally responded to them. You know, this was all put to FIFA. They didn't they deny or challenge these claims. FIFA did say they consulted sort of these key stakeholders, but Shakhtar basically say that's not true. So, it, so it is a pretty it's a pretty bitter dispute. And I think, you know, I think for a lot of people it will jar, particularly at a time where you know football was falling over itself to raise Ukrainian flags and say we're all in it together, we're all on your side. And then a major ruling comes out that costs Ukrainian football a huge amount of money. And I think it's not just the money right now. It's also, you know, when this war hopefully finishes, God knows when that will be. But if it was to be, I don't know, in a year's time, two years time, it, it means these Ukrainian clubs are going to have far less money to, to get back on their feet. Do go and check out Adam's first person accounts from back in March as well about the effect that the war beginning in Ukraine had on football in the country. Some very harrowing accounts from people affected there. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Ian. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. 
Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Okay, lots of Premier League teams still on tour, of course, all over the world preparing for the new season, including Newcastle United, who are in Austria, and are being followed by the Athletics' Chris Woff, who joins us now. Hello, Chris. How's Austria? Hi, Ian. Yes, it's absolutely glorious. What a beautiful part of the world this is. I've been certainly to far worse places for pre-season tours than the Austrian uh, mountains. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It does beg the question, though, why have Newcastle chosen there? There's a couple of reasons. First of all, they didn't initially choose to come to Austria. They initially chose to go to the US. They were meant to be playing in the Ohio Cup, uh, along with Wolves, Valencia and Villarreal. But the organisers there cancelled it just as as basically Newcastle's campaign finished at the end last year. And they were then scratching about to find somewhere. And Eddie Howe has a member of backroom staff who used to be at Liverpool. And he suggested that they come here. Liverpool are here later on in the week. They've been here each of the last few years. And they came out to check out the facilities and it's an absolutely glorious set and they've had top-class facilities and been able to play a couple of matches. The second reason is that Newcastle, after this, they're going to Portugal because they want to be away from their Benton training ground for a while because at the minute it's been upgraded in certain areas, so part of it essentially is a building site. So how I want to take them away both for team bonding and for practical reasons, really. Yeah, that's fair enough, isn't it? I mean, that would be a huge disruption, I'm sure. How's it been going then? Have you been in and around the team hotel and around training and things? Yeah, it's been great. So the game on Friday, just just up the road near Salfordon, um, where they played 1860 Munich and won uh, 3-0. We spoke to Howe and Bruno Gimmeresh after that match. Then yesterday on Sunday, we went to an open training session where the players all arrived. They've been driving around on e-bikes, so they've all been arriving <laughs> on train. They all came in on, the, on, on their e-bikes and we watched about half an hour at the start of the start of training. There was drones filming it because Eddie Howe said later on he was then going to watch it back afterwards. A very intense session of pressing that we watched we then went to the team hotel i had a long sit down with nick pope newcastle's uh, new goalkeeper signing who was brilliant to chat to very interesting backstory obviously a lot of intrigue with newcastle fans as to where whether he's going to be number one with england coming up with martin dubravka doing so well and we also sat and chatted teddy howe again a bit of a more relaxed setting to chat to him about his first pre-season here and really hopes and expectations for a season for Newcastle where finally, hopefully, there won't be in a relegation battle. Yeah, two points that are screaming out to me from that. First of all, e-bikes in pre-season. <laughs> There'll be old managers absolutely shaking their heads at that, no doubt whatsoever, especially with the hills. And secondly, do you think Nick Pope will be number one? Uh, in terms of the e-bikes, uh, yeah, they probably would be. The players seem to absolutely love them. Though. I mean, we've seen that. I bumped into Kieran Trippier in, in town the other day, just been out for a cycle when they had free time so they've been using them to get in and around everywhere all the coaching staff have been using them as well in terms of Nick Pope I do think that that he, he will be number one I think that Howe wants, wanted more competition for Martin Dubravka but also ever since he's come in he really has been looking for a different 
goalkeeper. And Pope himself said in an interview last year that he wouldn't have left Burnley unless he was going to be number one somewhere. Relegation okay. changed that slightly. And when I asked him about it, he didn't say it sort of outright, but he made it clear that he's come here hoping and expecting to be number one to try and get to the World Cup. And I think that we're likely to see by the Nottingham Forest game and the first game of the season for Newcastle that Pope will be between the sticks. Okay, of course, Nick's one of three signings for Newcastle so far this summer with Sven Botman and Matt Target joining on a permanent basis as well. But it's been the striker search in the last few days that's taken another twist. You've written about it on The Athletic and the the long chase for Ugo Ekatike is over, but unfortunately he's ended up at PSG and not St. James's Park. Yeah, it's been a frustrating summer for Newcastle when it comes to attack and reinforcements. They tried to sign Hugo Ekatike in January. They couldn't get that deal completed on deadline day then. They maintained contact. They had an agreement with with Rams, his club, that was in place, but they could never get an agreement with the agent who was asking for a lot of money. And also Hugo Agatike, who seemingly was holding out for this move to Paris Saint-Germain. And that's complicated matters for Newcastle now in terms of where they go next. Eddie Howe made it clear at the end of last season that where they needed to upgrade really was, was in attack. They've made three very good signs so far, but that bolsters what was already an improving defence. They haven't added goals to a team that scored 44 last season. Callum Wilson came back in and did very well in the final two games of the season, showed what he can do. But he's basically missed half of each of the last two campaigns with injury. And at the minute, they're relying on him. Chris Wood did a job when he came in in January, but he doesn't look like he's going to score enough goals. And so Newcastle are still actively searching for a centre-forward or a forward in some position, really, that like both a a, a versatile forward and a right-sided winger. At the moment, budgets are stretched. They're struggling to, to, to lure someone. Armando Broya is someone I like as well, but West Ham seem to be pushing ahead on that one. And really, it seems Newcastle are almost back to the drawing board, trying to work out what is feasible in between now and the end of the window. I have to admit, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole of your articles on The Athletic reading about strikers because they've gone in so many different directions and there's so many different names linked as well. It must be hard to keep abreast of it all. It, it is. And, and the thing that Newcastle have done and you've seen over the course of the last few weeks, not just with strikers, but also with right-sided forwards, is they've made quite a lot of inquiries to see who might be available, what price. So that's where the Anthony, Anthony Gordon link came from, from Everton. Newcastle yeah. sort of asked the question, how much would, would that be? Musa Diaby at Bayer Leverkusen would be their, their ideal right-sided forward signing, but they've been quoted essentially 60 million, which they're not prepared to pay. Jack Harrison at Leeds, they like a lot, again, being quoted a lot of money. So they are basically searching around the market. And, and at the minute, it seems they're also looking for... I don't want to be harsh to say Hugo Agatike light, but they're almost looking again in France at some other players. One is Bordeaux forward, uh, Siko Mara. He's he's a 19-year-old, someone, a young forward who can come in and really provide cover because... Ideally, they they see Wilson as their number nine. It changed a few months ago. They thought they might sign someone like Dominic Calvert-Lewin or Ivan Tony. But again, prices were just too high. And Newcastle are finding it very, very difficult to negotiate for forward players in this market. What's next then? Well, Newcastle are playing today uh, against Mainz. So for, they've, they've played Gateshead, who are obviously a conference team. They then played uh, a third-tier German side in 1860 Munich. And now they're, they're finally playing at a bit of a higher level. So it'll be interesting to see that. Newcastle then are also playing Burnley and behind closed door friendly next week and, and Benfica. In the meantime, Eddie Howe and Dan Ashworth, the, the sporting director who arrived 
a few weeks ago. They are pushing to try and find out what can what they can bring in forward-wise. Newcastle ideally would still like at least one offensive player in before they play in Nottingham Forest. At the minute, they aren't close on anything and they need to move players on as well. But it's still they're still very, very active in the market. Eddie Howe made that clear. And I'd be shocked if they don't sign at least one offensive player in the course of the next few weeks. How much do you think the appointment of Dan Ashworth is going to change things for Newcastle? What have you sent so far? I think it changes things massively. In January... Eddie Howe was almost like a de facto director of football as well as, as head coach. And although Howe intends to stay heavily involved and he wants full say in transfers in terms of he doesn't want any player imposed upon him, the minutiae behind it, having someone who can negotiate the, those deals, who can make all the inquiries that have been over the course of the last few weeks to see who might be available and see how Newcastle's budget can work and to really grow the infrastructure of the club off the field if you go beyond transfers. Someone who has a vision for how Newcastle can to make themselves into an elite club. He's an absolutely huge appointment and Eddie Howe has certainly welcomed him and I think he's everyone I've spoken to behind the scenes so far has been very impressed. He was out in Austria but flew back uh, yesterday to, to try and uh, negotiate a few other things with Newcastle United needs sorted back home. Interesting tease that, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> um, so he's in then as the sporting director and Darren Eels has been announced as the new chief executive officer as well. Are you getting the sense now that this hierarchy is nearly complete at the club? How much more do you think there is to do? Obviously, since the takeover happened, they've been, they've been on it sorting things out, but it's been slow progress in a sense. After Howe was appointed, the two big things they needed sorted was the sporting director, which they identified Dan Ashworth in January. It took them until nearly June to get him in, but he, he is there now in place. And the CEO was a search which had been ongoing basically since the takeover happened. Previously, before the new ownership came in, they didn't even have a CEO. They had a managing director in Lee Charnley, but really Mike Ashley was, was, was fully in control. So now they have someone in Darren Eels who is tasked with growing Newcastle commercially off the field. That's what they need to do they've had financial fair play issues in terms of how much they can spend this summer because their revenues need to grow certainly commercially he's he's done that at Atlanta very impressive how he's built it up there he's been at West Brom before worked with Dan Ashworth there he was also uh, worked with Daniel Levy at Tottenham Hotspur so he's someone who comes with with a lot of experience and that that executive team is is now in place they still need to bulk out other departments but they really needed the CEO to do that for some of the off-field commercial sort of driven areas and I think that it's important they've now got that before the start of this season and going forward I think we will see different sort of shirt sponsors and the like whereas as Newcastle try and really increase their revenue streams wherever they can Brilliant Thank you Chris Enjoy Austria and just before you go I'm wondering how long is it going to take you to get to this Mainz game on an e-bike I think that uh, that my backside would take a bit of, would be very very <laughs> sore by the time I got there if I was to go on an e-bike it would probably take me the best part of, of this week so I'm going to drive it instead and that'll be about an hour 15 minutes Sounds like a good idea mate yeah enjoy <laughs> Okay, before we go then, a reminder that The Athletic is following England every step of the way in the Euros this summer with our daily women's football podcast. So make sure you're subscribed to that. And The Athletic is, of course, the place to keep right up to date with all the big transfer news as well. And you can subscribe now for just £1 a month. Head to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. But for the minute, thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye. The Athletic.